All right, welcome everybody to our Sunday morning live stream. This is a live stream that we do every single Sunday at 8.45 Pacific Standard Time in the morning, a.m. And the format that we kind of go through is we go through some Genus Brewing news or some news elsewhere around the beer world. Then we go into a beer of the week, which today we're talking about Kvasish. And uh, uh, then we go into two discussion topics, which today they are kind of tied in and also tied into our beer of the week. We're talking about techniques for using high protein grains. And we're going to talk about some unique grains that you probably haven't heard of or probably haven't used that are actually really fun um, to make unique styles. Uh, I am joined here today with Teddy from the Grain Shed. And why don't you talk a little, a little bit about why the Grain Shed's so cool and what they do? Yeah, so uh, we at the Grain Shed have a, a really simple focus. Uh, we want to use 100% local grain for everything that we do, both on the beer side and on the bakery side. So we're actually a bakery as well, uh, focusing on bread. So we, uh, we source grains directly from farms for our baking. On the uh, brewing side, um, one, of, uh, one of my business partners is Joel uh, from Link Malt. So he founded the malt house here in Spokane. So we are able to get all of our grains malted in, um, in the area from local farms. So uh, we focus a lot on, uh, on a lot of unique grains, uh, land-raised grains, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But we have a very grain-focused uh, business all the way through. So, yeah. I took a bite. Could you guys hear how crispy that was? It was really tasty. It's a nice croissant. Stone, <laughs> stone milled, uh, wood-fired oven baked. It's delicious. So speaking of uh, local bakery and local beer, let's open up this guy. And uh, tell us the story behind the beer that you brought. Let's start with the Inland Northwest series you guys are doing. You got it. Yeah, so we, uh, we well, being grain-focused, we also are just generally location-focused. We really love the Inland Northwest. There's so much that, that the Inland Northwest has to offer. Uh, beer, both on the hop side and on the grain side. I mean, the Palouse is one of the most productive hop or grain growing regions in the entire world. So we've kind of come to this idea of having an Inland Northwest beer series. So we wanted to have an Inland Northwest lager, an Inland Northwest pale, and an Inland Northwest IPA. And each of those recipes will rotate. So this is our first iteration of the Inland Northwest pale, which is really based off of the theme of Vienna lager. Uh, because we have such fantastic malt around here, this is 100% Baroness Vienna malt. So it's like, I think it's 5.5 uh, L. It's really, really nice, clean, toasty. It's got a really, uh, really fantastic flavor to it. Um, yeah. And when we talk about the, uh, we talked before on the stream about how we have uh, grains that we sell here that are grown like 50 miles away and malted like three miles away. Um, this is the grains that we're talking about. Yeah. So this is Baroness Barley um, grown by Joseph's Granary down in Colfax, Washington, which like Peter said, it's like a 40 mile drive. It's really close. Yeah. Really, really cool. Um, in good years when it's uh, safe and functional, uh, Bill at, at uh, Joseph's Granary does what he calls Baroness Barley Harvest Day, which is essentially everybody, uh, you know, a bunch of brewers, distillers go down there. It's harvesting fields all around you. There's food. There's, I mean, you know, just a ton of beer. Uh, it's really, really neat. So this uh, is just kind of a, a great representation of what Baroness tastes like. The Vienna malt is absolutely fantastic. It's rich. Uh, very rich. And this has uh, only a little bit of bittering hop. I just did a little bit of uh, nugget, actually, uh, just enough for like 22, 23 IBUs. Just get really them in clean, there. Yeah. Really simple. Um, this was harvest, imperial harvest yeast. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, the subtle yeah. fruitiness you get off of the harvest, I always like it. I think it kind of complements the malt and helps push forward the flavors that you're looking for. Totally. Yeah. You get a little bit of that like 
little bit of that dried fruit piece to it, a little bit of that raisiny, raisiny deal. It's really nice, really clean, really simple. So this is the first iteration of our uh, in the Northwest Lager. We're gonna you know change it up each time, um, try something different. So I just realized that I forgot to. We had all this time. I forgot to change the title from last week. Hey. Look at that. Well, you know, we're just here to make it fun, right? Yeah. Keep I'll, everybody on their toes. I'll get in a little bit when we uh, can go into some other stuff. Uh, before we jump too far ahead into some stuff that he can talk more about, um, a couple of Genus Brewing News topic things. Um, we got a new Quike Hazion. We used uh, Loki. That's the Voss strain of Quike. That tasting really good. We got a new seltzer video out uh, just kind of talking about how we did our Peach Bellini seltzer with the Olive Nation extracts. So check that out. Super cool. Um, and we are about to release... Our how-to side-by-side-by-side seltzer video probably in a couple days. Uh, Genus Not Brewing hit 1,000 subscribers. So thank you, everyone, who has subscribed to Genus Not Brewing. All our fun content, all our uh, beer-related challenges, um, brewing with strange ingredients, we're going to move all that to the second channel because uh, it's just not doing what it should be doing on our first channel. And we think that's because we have a, a too diverse of an audience to really focus on you know, either education or um, kind of the fun, challenging stuff. So if you're interested in that stuff, go subscribe to the second channel, Genus Not Brewing. And that is it for our news. Did you know, did you did you learn the jingle? Uh, no. There's a jingle. I forgot you texted me and told <laughs> me to learn the jingle. <laughs> so here's how it goes. Uh, when we talk about the uh, the style breakdown, yep. the jingle goes: beer of the week, bump bump bump, beer of the week. Time. Beer of the week, bump bump bump, beer of the week. Perfect. All right. So let's practice it together. Let's do it all yep. together, and then we'll go into it. Um, now it's time for our beer of the week, bump bump bump, beer of the week. Nailed it. Cool. Uh, and today's style breakdown is Kvass. And why don't you give them a breakdown on Kvass while I go and uh, um, change the title. <laughs> yeah, you got it. So Kvass is kind of a, an old, uh, I mean, it's a very old style originating in the, the areas of Russia uh, as a way to use up old bread. So uh, I, I have a particular interest in Kvass just being a bakery also. Um yeah, Kvass was really designed as a way to make sure that zero waste uh, was happening um, when you know you couldn't really afford to have waste uh, back several hundred years ago in the Russian steppes. So uh, Kvass is essentially just a way of mashing bread to be able to pull out sugars that you can then let spontaneously ferment, get a little bit of alcohol. It's not really super strong traditionally, but it's a little bit more potable than actual water or at least would be a little bit more potable than actual water. Um, from, you know, looking back several hundred years. Uh, yeah, so it, it's an interesting deal. Really low ABV. It can be flavored with a lot of different things. And there are, you can make kvass in a couple of different ways. Um, sometimes you'll see beet kvass and things like that for some alternative sugar uh, sources. Um, but traditionally, it's made with bread. Uh, we will talk a little bit more about what we do at the grain shed to make kvass in our own little ways. Um, but it's traditionally a, a non hopped beverage as well. It, it, you know, really didn't have a lot of ties to beer until more recently as breweries were like, Hey, how could we start using some, some, some different aspects and different things, um, to, to add different flavors there. So yeah, kvass is a really, really cool thing because it does reduce waste it makes sure that you you know nothing nothing goes wrong and you know it's a, a neat one that you can try a lot of different things with um with fermentation and things like that i mean bread can get moldy and things like that and you know mashing it can can kind of add some different different aspects to it so uh What's your favorite style yeah of bread? 
Ooh, style of bread to make when, uh, or style of bread to use when we make kvass? Good question. Uh, we'll use everything. Um, we make a 100% rye bread, so not like your normal deli rye with caraway seed and things like that, but like super, super dense German rye. Um, rye doesn't, you know, doesn't uh, rise the same way that wheat breads will. So it has this really, really crazy rich flavor. And in kvass, it is absolutely fantastic. Um, it pairs super well. It's spicy. It's herbal. It's really, really nice. Um, the cool part about kvass and, and things like that also is that you can change the flavors on how you process leftover bread as well. So for us, when we brew kvass, we'll, we'll use our, you know, leftover hunks of bread from making toast slices and sandwiches and things like that. Um, but you can change those flavors very, very actively by doing things like roasting or you just toasting bread. You can burn it to really get a lot of those like roast malt sort of flavors and things like that. You can, you can do a lot of different pieces there. Um, it, you know, you kind of run into some things where you, uh, with certain breads, like we, you know, kind of the antithesis of what, what you said, Peter, about what's our favorite. We do have things that we try to avoid thinking like, you know, you generally don't want too much fat going into a mash. Um, so we, we try to avoid any of our enriched doughs, um, you know, things with a lot of butter or egg or things like that. But we will use some. Um, we, don't, we don't produce a lot of enriched doughs, a lot of enriched breads. So uh, most, of it is, um, most of it is just sourdough, like traditionally fermented sourdough breads. Um, we, I, I do really love, we have a bread that we uh, make with a fermented oat porridge as well that has fenugreek and coriander seed in it that has this really awesome like herbal maple kick from the fenugreek. That's a really fantastic bread to use in kvass as well. And in fact, I made a kvass somewhat recently to mimic that bread and it turned out absolutely fantastically. And we'll, we'll talk about that as well. Boom. Sounds delicious. Thanks, everyone, for waiting for me to get back. Thanks, Teddy, for holding it down. You got it. Um, yeah, so that should be if we were to go back and then we were to re-upload or reset. We should be able to find. Look at that. New. Look right there. New thing and everything. Ancient oh, land race grains. We look really sexy. Boom. Yeah, that's perfect. Cool. Fantastic. All right, let's go on to our, so Teddy's kind of give you a breakdown on kvass and what all we use. We, our malt of the week was just going to be bread, um, obviously, because there's a lot of different ways you can incorporate bread into kvass. And uh, did you already talk about how when you're talking about kvass, we're kind of going kvass-ish, right? Kvass-ish, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I didn't quite talk about that yet because, but really, like, we, we still, when we make kvass, we do actually still use malt as a base. Um, just because, you know, when you make traditional kvass, you kind of struggle to get above like 1% ABV. Because you don't have a lot of the active enzymes that are working yeah. your way. So Yeah, and like there's sugars. Yeah, like you said, it's we want more because we want it a little bit more shelf-stable. And, you know, it needs to be saleable. And not a lot of people want to spend, you know, $12 <laughs> on a Crowler for a 1.2% ABV beverage. So I'm sure there's some people out there. but <laughs> There are some. But, you know, we, we want it to move a little bit faster than that for sure. Yeah, so uh, the biggest thing when it comes to uh, doing kvass-ish, which we're talking about, is just making sure that you have enzymes that are being active and actually breaking down the bread starches into some fermentable sugars and then also using a base of malt um, that uh, 
uh, that's going to help convert everything and also going to give you some more sugars to ferment. Um, you, what, what, what's your favorite malt to use when you do um, your base? For yeah. Glass? Depends yeah. on the bread probably, right? It depends on the bread and it depends on, you know, we, we kind of use the, our, our kvass, we call them the wasted loaf, which we think is real, real, real cute and real kitschy. <laughs> um, but when we make our wasted loaves, we, we do a lot of different things. I kind of use it as an opportunity to make something like totally out there, something totally weird. Um, so for me, the, my, my generally favorite malt base is actually like pretty close to 100% Pilsner base. Yeah. Um, I, I really like having something that, you know, bread has that bready flavor. Anyways, having something a little bit lighter, a little bit straw, grassier kind of plays nicely with that flavor. Though we will use, we'll use pale, English pale, something like, I mean, hell, we've done things that are, are Munich based. So we'll, yeah. we'll use some, some 100% Munich bases as well if we're doing something a little bit darker. And then I'll generally roast or toast a little bit of bread too to get that little, you know, that, that deeper, richer um, flavor to it. But yeah. most often, I think if I looked, it would be uh, pills. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I could see a couple of breads, maybe like a pumpernickel or like a dark rye or something like totally. that. Totally. Standing up to some other malts. But I, I like that idea of Pilsner as the base. Yeah, and you know, when we use rye bread, I'll generally do a rye-based beer. And then, you know, obviously with rye, it's a hullless grain, so we do need to have some barley in there as well. And generally I'll do, with rye, it's a little bit meatier anyways. So I'll do a pale, um, yeah. sometimes an English pale um, as well. And then, and then do the rest of the flavor based off of that as well, using some, some spicy, spicy things throughout. Nice. So. Makes a lot of sense. Uh, Kent, hey, thank you so much for the super chat. We appreciate you supporting the channel. Um, always makes us feel good when people give us super chats. Makes us feel like, uh, you know, you appreciate what we're doing. So thank you. Um, let's go on to, uh, so for hop of the week, again, this is a really weird style of beer. It's one of those beers kind of like when we're talking about, you know, braggots where you can do hops, but it's not necessarily traditional. Um, so, uh, let's talk about, instead of just hops, let's talk about different spices that you, that you've seen that you've put in kind of depending on the flavor profile of beer. I've seen things like mint, like things like raisins. Yep. 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 We'll use dried fruit in, in them fairly frequently. Uh, I mentioned briefly earlier that we did one based off of our fermented oat porridge bread, uh, which is called the Otis, the, the name of the bread. And it's a fermented oat porridge that has fenugreek seed and coriander seed. Yeah. So the one that I did with that recently, I literally just took, I think it was 22 pounds of fermented oat porridge with the fenugreek and coriander and just dumped it straight in the bottom of the fermenter nice. and let that be a good portion of the, uh, of the yeast yeah. added to it. And it was... That, I mean, that was fantastic. That fenugreek coriander brings this, like, crazy strong maple flavor oh, yeah. through. It's really fantastic, which I, I didn't really expect um, with the amount of coriander that we have in it. But that fenugreek just comes through really strong. Tons of uh, maple flavor. Uh, so that was really nice. Um, raisins have definitely used a fair few times. Um, I You know, I'll, I also do like... Um, Lemon verbena. We've done lemon verbena okay. in a kvass before. And actually, I think that we mixed that with pink peppercorn. Okay, that um, makes sense. It, it kind of made that, that, that nice mix of flavor. Yeah, you get the bright, like, almost a medicinal herbalness from the lemon verbena. Yes. And then, the yeah, the pink peppercorn to kind of yeah. give you some spiciness on top of that. Yeah, and we'll, we'll generally use that when we do, like, a blend of breads, uh, yeah. which is often what we'll do. We, we sometimes will do single-type single breads. Um, but often it's, it's mixed blend just based off of like whatever we've been using for sandwiches, slices, things like that at the shop. Um, and so that, that's generally a pretty nice base. So we can do a lot of different things on top of that. Awesome. Yeah. 
Um, so you, uh, you talked about with the fermented oat porridge, um, using that as your, uh, as your yeast. Um, I put the yeast of the week as a sourdough starter, but I think pretty much any started yeast based on what you're kind of doing will work pretty well, right? What, totally. do you, what have you gotten from different, so uh, you've talked about the fermented oat porridge. How about from sourdough starter? What do you get when you use that? Yeah, so that, that's a good question. So we, we wanted to try, we, we did a beer quite a while ago where we did a small portion of, uh, of a sourdough starter. Mm. It's really nice, turned mm. out really, really good. We, did, we also pitched traditional Saison with it as well, which w- was a good flavor pairing, um, honestly. But it, it worked really well. So I wanted to try 100% sourdough starter. So we did, <laughs> uh, we did I think it was a, a full batch of Levan for us, which is normally, it's about 11 pounds of uh, Coruscant or a Kamut-based, um, as far as the, the flour goes within our, our house culture for sourdough right. um, and fermented. That was the only yeast that we pitched for it. And it was incredible. It was, it was actually when it fermented, it blew the top off of our, off of our barrel and a half fermenter. Yeah. It like oozed this, it, it like crystallized all oh, of the, all of the, the krausen that came out. Like it crystallized. It was, it almost looked like meringue. Huh. Really strange. But the overall beer, it took a long time to clarify. <laughs> it was really muddy for quite a while. So it, it probably sat for two months before it was really ready to transfer and, yeah. and, and bright up and then carbon keg. Uh, but it ended up having, I'm not a huge traditional Bavarian like bison guy, yeah. yeast person, but it had a lot of those similar flavors in the best way possible. It, yeah. like, it kind of had that nice, like, fruity clovey piece right strangely without it being overwhelming and off-putting it was really clean uh and and it was kind of a mix of that like bavarian hefeweizen flavor and saison yeah uh, honestly it was really awesome it had a really wonderful flavor so i don't know uh who's gonna remember this maybe some of the older fans have been watching our live streams for a while but logan and i actually tried that on a live stream like one of our earlier live streams that we did um, right, right after it came out, and we were like, "Wow!" This, and it reminded me of Dogfish Head a long time ago. Did an ancient series, and they used—I forget what they call it. I just remember dome being in the name because mm. um, they used uh, dome fruit and some stuff from uh, Egypt, basically. Yes. Um, but it reminded me a lot of that, where it had that kind of subtle uh, fruitiness, like a Bavarian yeast would, a little bit of clove, but without the clove being off-putting, and just being kind of this, this like smooth, sessionable, almost milky. Um, kind of feel it worked surprisingly <clears throat> well too we so uh, that was it was another kvass so it was a, a good portion of bread generally when i when i brew a kvass it's on our small system so it's a barrel and a half and i'll generally try to do uh about 30 to 50 pounds of bread in the mash yeah um and this had that as well and it ended up um it ended up at like an og of about 1054 mm. With just the sourdough starter, it fermented down to uh, 9.98. Wow! It was insanely dry, but it didn't feel super dry. Yeah, it didn't it still feel felt champagne-y. Creamy, yeah. It didn't feel it didn't feel really crazy dry. It had a nice sweetness to it. It was really fantastic. But yeah, it ended up being like 7.2 percent, really unexpectedly, because that yeah. sourdough starter fermented down so far. I'm surprised that it wasn't uh, that it took so long to clarify down that that down that low. Yeah, it it was it was, it, I mean, definitely the most interesting fermentation that we've come across. And that's what's fun. I love being able to experiment with you know things like sourdough starter where you don't necessarily know what you're going to get, um, but you know you, whatever happens is going to be fun. To, yeah, fun to see it regardless. Yeah, absolutely. 
Let's jump into uh, techniques for some high protein grains. That's going to be our topic number one of the week. Uh, I'm going to skip. Uh, we usually do some water chem uh, ideas when it comes to the beer of the week, but I feel like with the kvass, it's kind of like really, really dependent on a lot of things. And yeah. so uh, in general, I probably think something that's more minerally um, just as an idea. But uh, there's, there's not really a good consistent water profile for, no. for us, I don't think. No, and it's hard, too, because with sourdough breads, which is what we bake and, and then use for salt kvass, in there already, yeah. there's salt in there, and it's generally acidic. So it's hard <laughs> to do any acid treatments, too. Um, honestly, I, I can't say that I've been super great with testing my pH on, on our kvasses, but yeah. next time I brew it, I will, just to see like generally what my pH is. How it changes but I, it, yeah. I haven't really ever acidulated my, my mashes. Yeah. For Voss, so. The Apartment Brewer, thank you so much for the super chat. Really appreciate the info on sourdough starter fermentation. I've looked into that before, and there's just not much info out there on that. So if I see you do a video on sourdough starter, uh, I'll be really happy. You should really do I, I love seeing people who play with some stuff, especially that are doing YouTube videos. Uh, the Apartment Brewer is another person that puts out a lot of nice. content on this stuff. Um, and I love seeing when people play with fermentations and things that are not as set in stone. There's a lot of people that want to just kind of be like, I know how to brew this beer, so that's what I'm going to put on YouTube. And I think totally. it's way more fun when people are like, I don't know how to brew this style of beer, but I'm going to play with it and see what happens. Uh, also, USMC Mike one Enjoy the weekly show. Thank you so much for the super chat. We really appreciate that. All right, let's jump into techniques for high-protein grains, but let's jump into, before we do that, what's next? Ooh. You know, I think that we should go to a land race because okay. we're about to talk about high-protein grains. Yep. Let's do, uh, I think Purple Egyptian is going to be Egyptian. a good one. Perfect. Yeah. I'm excited for that. Should I give an intro on what Purple Egyptian is? Yeah, do it. Okay. So we'll talk a little bit more about unique, unique grains uh, a little bit later. But uh, Peter's grabbing a beer that we make with Purple Egyptian barley. So Purple Egyptian barley is an African variety of black barley. Um, actually grows black purple-ish black in the field. It's really fantastic. Um, grown by a, a good friend of ours and actually one of our co-owners at the, at the grain shed named John Sherman. His farm down in the Palouse uh, called uh, uh, Palouse Heritage. Uh, really, really fantastic farm. They grow some of the most unique grains that you could ever find. So Purple Egyptian has this really beautiful dried fruit, dried apricot flavor. It is a self-threshing grain, which means that it's essentially hullless. There's a decent amount of hull material in there, but we treat it as though it's hullless. So we do cut it with another barley that is hulled, which is called uh, Scott's Bear Barley. So um, as we pour this, this is a little bit low carb, which is actually intentional, uh, which kind of drives people a little bit nuts. But it is a really... Actually, it's looking pretty good today. But it's this really beautiful um, flavor to it. And I actually find a slightly lower carb fits it well. It kind of helps that the English style push forward. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, it we get we get a fair few untapped things where people are, are mm. irritated that it's low carb. <laughs> untapped, the uh, the king of, uh, of everything you should follow when yeah. it comes to deciding what beer is good. The Yelp of beer. Right. <laughs> Was that good? Oh, that's really good. I like that. That's got like a subtle acidity to it as well. Yeah. Um, it's got like a, uh, a bright, almost floral kind of quality yeah. that comes from the malt, which totally. is really fun. Yeah. Yeah, really, that yeah that's enjoyable. Little bit of fla that little bit of like, uh, it's always to me come across as dried apricot. 
Yeah. It's like a, and it's really subtle. It's very grape nutty too. Like brewing with purple Egyptian, it it literally smells like grape nuts. It's, yes. And tastes like grape nuts. It's fantastic. It's one of our very favorite grains and and beers. Um, really nice. Really clean. Absolutely. All right. So let's go into some techniques for high protein grains because purple Egyptian is a high protein grain. And you already mentioned that it's holeless. Yep. Um, which might uh, I'm just going to jump down to one of the things that I have here with high protein grains in general is using rice holes. Yeah. Or using, you know, a really husky grain. Yeah. Um, I, I know sometimes uh, some, uh, I think it was triticale I had a while ago that was really husky. Um, and then a lot of oat malts that I bring in will be like, oh, they'll have extra so husk much. on them too. So yeah. using something that's got that little extra bit to fluff up the grain bed can be a really good, uh, uh, you know, a really good thing to have. Yeah. So for this, we did, like I said, this is uh, with purple Egyptian being hollows, we did cut it with a, a hold on barley. So uh, another land race grain that, that we'll talk about in a little bit. Scots bear, mm. which is has this crazy heritage, but it's a really uh, Scots bear is a really really small barley, and as a result, like there's a lot of husk matter per pound in it, just because the kernels themselves are pretty small. So this yeah. is actually about it's sixty percent purple Egyptian, forty percent Scots bear, mm-hmm. um, to be able to create that that amount of filtration gotcha. and, and we've generally had really great success no stuck mash nothing like that perfect it's been pretty nice yeah and the one thing that you want to uh with any high protein grain not just you know you know when you know huskless ones anything that you're worrying about basically is how that uh that sparge water is going to be filtering through the grain bed and so anything that you can use to fluff up the mash is just going to make it sure that the water can um rinse more evenly through the grain bed um is what we're talking about and so using rice holes or using a husky barley or it, yeah even just a small a uh, lot of husk to small grain matter yep. barley yep. Uh, is a good way to do it. Yeah. Um, let's go into, okay, so uh, do you guys do step mashing when you do uh, a lot of the high protein stuff? You know, we don't, but that's more, not because we don't want to, that's more based off of the equipment that we have. So like yeah. for these, we're brewing 10 barrel batches um, and we have a, an, we don't have a, a mash ton with, adjustable heat yeah. we could do it with multiple water additions yeah. for sure but uh we've we've generally just done single infusion um mashing for this which as a result we do end up having fairly low extract these land race grains are kind of tricky with that anyways and right. they are high protein this purple egyptians uh just under 16 percent, i believe wow. or hovering just around 16 percent. yeah um, which actually even with that Still pretty nice and clear. And in fact, the, yeah, great the majority of what you see in there is actually, I think, just yeast. Yeah. Um, so it's nice and clear, uh, even with, you know, having insanely high protein. Um, we actually think that protein adds flavor. Yeah, uh, for sure. Which is what we really love. That's what I tell people about grains. Pilsner malts. Yeah. That's why you use yeah. Pilsner malts. Yeah. Absolutely. They're strong. They're still, yeah. So these, these really nice high protein things, step mashing, I would like to be able to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I would like to be able to get a little bit more of that breakdown and and more enzyme activation and things like that from it. Uh, but what generally I've done, um, is just single infusion, um, aiming. I I try to aim because these are are meant to be a little bit stronger, richer. I aim for like 154, 154 degrees roughly, um, on that. So uh, it, it is something that we, you know, we've brewed with purple Egyptian now for several years. And I mean, even I'll, I'll be rebrewing this in a couple of months and it's still, I'm changing my process every single time yeah. because it is such a, they're challenging to use when they're that high of protein. And the, the, 
we see so much loss, like protein yeah. loss in a, in a mash with these. You, it like, absorbs a lot of liquid at the end. Oh, yeah, it absorbs so much, yeah. so much liquid. Like, you know, with a, a more commodity grain, what you'd expect like a pa- or a, <laughs> a gallon per 10, or I don't even remember what the amount is. It's yeah. about one and a half times the absorption of what you would normally see. And Which the, on a 10 barrel batch, that's, you know, the difference between losing a half barrel and losing almost two kegs. Oh yeah, it's yeah. wild. And I mean, we, we, we see as much trub doing this, which has less than three pounds total hops in a 10 barrel batch. Yeah. As we do seeing something that I have 15 pounds of hops going in yeah. on an IPA in a 10 barrel batch. Like yeah. we, we, we have that much trub, you know, protein loss in the bottom of that or in that boil kettle. It's wild. Crazy. Uh, yeah. So I, we, I've talked with Logan about this quite a bit before and I want to do, cause he failed at doing hundred percent purple Egyptian barley. Cause he just single infusion mashed it. And oh, did like, yeah. yeah. Um, but I think I can do hundred percent purple Egyptian. I'd love to get that flavor, but I think it would involve doing some sort of a step mash and probably even some sort of either a decoction or a ramped mash yeah. where you actually boil the grains to help break down the proteins totally. on the grains. So totally. I mean, kind of like they do with, and I can know the turbid mashes on here, right? But yeah. Like, it, it is. They, they need to be treated differently. Yeah. And I would love to do hundred percent purple, Yeah. but it, it like, like it's you really do have to be able to do some different techniques for it and having like a yeah. less less sophisticated mash done makes it a little bit more challenging yes um particularly on a 10 barrel you know we don't have a yeah if you have a less sophisticated mash ton on like a five gallon scale it's pretty easy to totally to you out. can scoop that thing out with a with a you know a pot we yeah. you know we don't have a slurry pump and, and a separate kettle that we can do everything with so yeah. you know we're, we're kind of limited on that but yeah 100 percent purple if you guys do that let me know i would yeah. love to be there That'd because be awesome. it's i mean it's the most unique barley that you can find and it's the flavor on it is just exceptional so yeah, yeah but uh, you, you're right like it's got to be stepped some way and and broken down a little bit more and yeah i like the idea of the mechanical breakdown like actually boil on the so i like the idea of yeah. either decoction or doing an all like it, the Absolutely. entire grain uh, all the way up to a boil totally um, that's that's probably the way that i'd want to do it but it's gonna it's definitely not it's gonna be a long brew day yeah um, oh it, yeah we have a similar kind of system down at the steel barrel on the seven barrel where yep. we don't have a comp complicated mash tun. It's just a basic vessel. And so when I have to do a step mash, I have to draw out the liquid and go into the uh, boil kettle, heat it up in the boil kettle, and then put it, put it back into the mash tun. Yeah. And that uh, adds two to three hours to the brew day. Totally. Yeah. So. Well, and you know, for like, we could do it with some water infusions, but where we are, so we, we are in a, a, an alternating proprietorship at another brewery in town called Bellwether. Um, we recently, actually about a year ago, but we're still figuring out, we got on-demand hot water. Yeah. Which is fantastic. Highly recommended. But I mean, and then we just recently finally got the grist hydrator fixed there. So oh, no. now we have grist hydration. And so we're still just, I mean, I think that we've relearned how to brew on that system like four or five times since we got started there about yeah. a year and a half ago. And which is great. It's fun. It's really enjoyable. But, it, you know, being able to refine some of those process pieces of, of doing a step mash or you know, several water infusions to bring different temperatures has been tricky. Yeah. Um, while, while people might be thinking this, well, you know, that are out there, do you know if there's a way to buy any of these land race grains that we're going to talk about on topic two, uh, online? Uh, say it again. I'm so sorry. Is there a way to, uh, uh, buy any of these, these grains that we're talking about? In, yeah. Two I know that link, uh, so all of these grains that we're, that I'm talking about link are, sorry, purple Egyptian barley, uh, Scott's bear barley, um, are, are malted by Link Malt in Spokane. And I believe that they do have online sales um, at a homebrew size um, yeah. from their website. Uh, so Link Malt, L-I-N-C, Malt, um, stands for Local Inland Northwest Cooperative. Um, you can get those things here. Do you guys sell 
any of these. Uh, we sell, we sell the them. Yeah, yeah. We we pretty much sell the entire gamut of what they offer. But yeah. a lot of you know a lot of people watching are you know we had one this morning that said good morning from Pennsylvania and sweet. You know, there's people from Australia, which you probably add a look there. But, uh. That one might be tricky internationally. <laughs> who knows? You know, honestly, I, I believe that they have them online for homebrew size. If okay. not, I would highly recommend just reaching out to them directly. They're all fantastic people there, and they really want to spread the word on what they yeah. do. Because they, I mean, they they don't malt standard malting varieties at, at least as much like yeah. we, they did one batch of copeland one or two batches of copeland one yeah. which is like the traditional amba variety of barley that you'll get from a lot of places other than that it's all unique varieties of barley whether they're they're high efficiency or low efficiency like these right. land race grains but you know, honestly, from my opinion, pound for pound, you're not going to find anything more flavorful than these than these land race grains, which are low efficiency, but the flavor on them is just insane. Yeah. So it's about building flavor. That's why you use yeah. a lot of these land race grains. Yeah. Uh, all right. So let's talk about uh, uh, we've kind of talked about decoction and mash ramping. I'm not going to go into that because we've talked about that on the channel a lot before, but those are good uh, techniques to use for high protein malts. Uh, diminished ma mashing I threw in there just because it's traditional for a kvass. What that means is you get your mash temperature in relatively high, and then you basically throw it in an oven and let it naturally cool down. Um, so that's a diminished matching. And the reason that that's not usually used in the brewing world is because that's really bad for enzyme production. But I threw it in there because it's traditional for a kvass. Um, enzymes, do you use a lot of enzymes or have you used enzymes when it comes to uh, mashing? No, I, I have I have literally never used enzymes. Uh, we're, you know, we're, we kind of follow the, the purity thing as much as we can. Yeah. Um, Nothing against enzymes at all, but particularly for these beers, I'm not brewing these beers to be high alcohol. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like I'm brewing them to to show highlight the what these flavors are, what these grains are, and show how unique they are. And so I, I really like. I mean, when we first started, we were we were on like a 10 gallon Sabco. Yeah. It was time, you know, the original like behind the bar. Yeah, behind <laughs> the bar. You know, heating that place up like crazy, um, and. We we struggled to get anything above like four and a half percent with these little guys, uh, with the with the purple Egyptians, the Scots Bears, the Red Russians, whatever. Um, and over time, we've been able to get that a little bit better, just refine of practice. And you know, the biggest thing that we've found with these is you got to mill them like crazy. Yeah, they, they are. I mean, landrace grains, uh, I, I guess, is an important thing to talk about really quickly with these. They are high protein and they're right, but these are counted as landrace grains, which essentially means that they are naturally occurring, naturally developing grains. So they, they weren't hybridized. They weren't bred in a lab or somewhere. They, I mean, purple Egyptian was a naturally uh, occurring grain in, actually not Egypt, but in Ethiopia. Uh, Scotsbear barley was an, is the oldest cereal uh, grain in the British Isles, in the Orkney Islands, is where it's um, traditionally grown. And then our farmer Don grows it down on the plus. Same with the purple Egyptian. Uh, they are naturally occurring, and then they develop mechanisms based off of where they're grown. So they're grown here. Uh, down between St. John and Endicott, Washington, um, in the Palouse. And that has its own unique climate, very unique climate, unique soil. So it develops unique defense mechanisms, flavors, things like that for what the, you know, the traditional um, things that grain will struggle with in our area. It's dry land, so it means that we don't get a lot of moisture, um, which actually builds that protein. It builds flavor. Um, but it's generally a smaller grain. There's yeah. not a lot of not a lot of that sugary, starchy endosperm. 
Um, but there's a lot of bran, which is where all that mineral content and all yeah. of those things stay, which is great, and the germ. Um, so with these being land race grains, they they function differently and they have different things that are going for them. Yeah. Um, which is, is really unique. And, and so we, we generally haven't wanted to put any enzymes or anything in that. We want them to you just want, yeah, you function. Don't to, you don't want to break down the proteins because you want to show off because exactly. the proteins do build a lot of flavor in them. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, the, so I talked about a little bit, uh, we talked a little bit about turbid mashing. Turbid mashing is a technique for basically taking off the pre-broken down starchy bits, boiling those up, and, and continually adding those back in as like a step, or actually putting those off to the side for a boil, um, and then con- doing basically a step mash with new water infusions and kind of a turbid mashing, which that technically, I guess, that would be possible in the bellwether system. Yeah, that probably would be. And I mean, that's, mm. and uh, not no, this is not my style, but that's like a, a big lambic. Style, or, or, yeah, or it's traditionally done for right? yeah for lambics. Yeah, yeah. to give a lot of the dextrins for the long term, like yeah, aging and everything. Because like I mean, they'll use a lot of unmalted things, and so being able to pull a lot of those starches would work really well for these, where where you do have a lot of starch content. Yeah, um, and then just a lot of proteins that they do need to be broken down because it ends up. I mean, you have so much loss and so much just like yeah. insoluble proteins that come out of it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I mean, when when we're looking at these things that are like purple Egyptian being about sixteen percent protein, what traditional malted barley like brewery barley is nine to ten percent? I think it's lo- lower than that. Like, like, I mean, I know that the the, the lion's barley that uh, Joel's been using that was bred to be like five, like yeah, really, really it's low, crazy low protein. So I mean, we're looking at the, these grains being like two to three times higher protein than than what you would see like traditional Copeland Harrington blend barley. Like it's wild. They're really, really high protein, which yeah, is challenging to use. It, it ends up making some different different issues. So yeah, just trying to read through the comments. I know there's so many. <laughs> just trying, 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 making mental notes for when you get to the Q&A stuff. Uh, and the last thing I mentioned is stirring a lot. Stirring is typically not recommended in standard brewing practices. However, uh, I think sometimes when I'm doing high protein grists and stuff like that, I don't, uh, the reason it's uh, um, not recommended is because there's a lot of uh, uh, beta glucans and certain things that are susceptible to oxidation, supposedly, that can get into your uh, boil kettle. Um, This day and age, they're usually not pre-oxidized. They're usually pretty healthy, shelf-stable grains, and so stirring isn't as big of an issue. But um, stirring a lot during the mash, both to increase efficiency and break up those protein structures that might be reducing your sparge, and then also just to get some of that into the boil kettle. Yeah, Yeah, so it's really interesting. Uh, Purple Egyptian, so black barleys Mm -hmm. generally, I mean, they're are other varieties of black barleys. Black barleys uh, traditionally uh, arose in two locations, and it was the Nile River Valley, Ethiopia, that area, and then actually the Himalayas. The Himalayas generally are, are a less flavorful um, black barley, but they are generally food barleys. They're generally eating barleys, and they have insanely high beta glucans. Like yeah. I, I, I don't know the, the the numbers on it, but it's super high, which is actually really heart healthy. So if you want a heart healthy beer, brew with purple Egyptian. It's really great for you. Um, but it, yeah, it totally causes problems. It, yeah. it can beta glucans and things like that can, can be challenging. Yeah. We do stir a lot, particularly as we're mashing in. Yeah. We, we try to break up as much as possible. And, yeah. you know, we're talking about purple Egyptian right now, but another one that we'll probably want to drink next is red Russian, yeah. uh, which is a wheat. Um, and it's, it's actually not Russian at all. It's, it's an English wheat, but it's, it got its name because the, the Russian Germans in the Palouse in Washington 
it was their favorite brewing or uh, sorry, their favorite growing wheat, um, like the 1880s, 90s, 1900s. Yeah. Um, it has like it's because it's a wheat, it has really its proteins uh, are a lot more glutinous. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first time we brewed with it and even to this day, that gluten in there is so strong that we physically have to tear it off of fittings in our mash kettles. <laughs> and there are our, our mash tons and brew kettles and things like that. It is so strong and viscous. The first time we did it, it we got a, what we thought was a stuck mash. It actually wasn't. It was just that there was so much like really, really strongly balled protein stuck in the the bottom tube of our mash tun yeah. from the red Russian itself because it, it itself, like the, the protein, it is just so wild. Crazy. Um, yeah, it's really, really interesting. But we do stir an awful lot. And like I said, milling is the biggest thing that we have found yeah, to impact it. it. We have to fine mill these things like crazy um, and then generally have to fairly slowly lauder it yeah uh to make you sure guys also have do you guys have your own mill for you guys have to have your own mill for like making because you make your own flour out of these stuff too we do yeah so we 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 mill um for for uh baking on a big stone mill um, right from a company in in i think uh vermont called new american stone mills but and we uh, we actually haven't really tried milling on that for brewing with the exception that i did once for uh a raw grain that we were using okay um and I overmilled it and then had flour in the mash, which <laughs> yeah. is a nightmare. But it uh, that is something that I have wanted to try with wheats and things like that where we're not dealing with a husk right. going through that mill. Um, but that is, I mean, we, on our general roller mill at the brewery, we crank that thing down for these land race grains because they're small. Yeah. They're little guys. They're not meant to be big and plump. That's not why they, they didn't. They weren't bred. They are naturally occurring things with defense mechanisms. They're not agrochemical dependent, things like that. So it's we have to mill them like super fine. And I would also imagine that uh, higher protein makes their fracture a little bit uh, less consistent. Oh, like crazy. I mean, Scott's Bear, the, the hold barley that we use for all of these things, it doesn't like, I mean, it doesn't want, the hold doesn't want to let go of the starchy portions yeah. of the seed it's it's aggravating is what it is <laughs> but yeah it it's super inconsistent because of that high protein, protein luckily we just got a new mill if you guys haven't seen the video because we got a new mill you guys know the mill comment below what your favorite mill is um uh frazzle penguin you guys rock period that is all end of line thanks frazzle penguin i miss your jokes you i, I might have missed some in this if you already said some but i miss your jokes um let's go on to that was it. That was it for techniques for high protein grains. All right, unique grains to build flavor. We already talked about some of these, um, but let's kind of go over some other ones. And let's, I guess we just talked about red Russian wheat. But let's talk about that because we're going to get red, red Russian yeah. re- wheat beer. Wheat. Nailed it. There you go. So, Using words. Yeah, so red Russian is this really, really fantastic wheat um, that's really unique. Um, it's, like I said, it's not actually Russian, um, but it was the favorite. Uh, favorite wheat for uh, Russian-German farmers in the Palouse to grow about 140 years ago. Um, it's actually, it's, uh, its more traditional name is English Squarehead, and it's, it grows to be the size of corn. Um, when you, like, it, standing in a field of it, it grows to be, like, six feet tall. Uh, for reference, um, if you're driving through the Palouse, uh, wheat is very, very, very commonly grown. It's like 95% of the grain that's grown in the Palouse. Um, just standard commodity wheat, which is so uninteresting that it's just called commodity wheat or modern wheat. Um, but it, it grows to be at about max 
18 inches tall. Um, Red Russian grows to be about six feet tall. So walking through a field of it, it literally looks like you're walking through a field of corn. It's really fantastic. And its flavor profile is what we love for it the most. It's got this really, really beautiful, uh, slightly herbal flavor to it. Um, it's, yeah, overall just really, really delightful. Um, this actually has a small amount of flavor hops in it. Um, yeah, it's really, really pretty. Um, we have this uh, whirlpooled, um, like, just flame out uh, cascade. So it's got that nice, yeah, that floralness from the cascade is like. I feel like it's what I want on top of the malt profile that's yeah. already there. It's really good. Yeah, and the the malt itself, the Red Russian, is it's just crazy herbal. It's really yeah. the first time we brewed with it, and we haven't had it quite the same since. It had this really interesting strong coriander flavor to it and you get a little bit of that a little bit of that like underlying citrus and, and almost just, peppery spice yeah, yeah yeah it's really really nice it's one of it's one of the favorites like it, it's just such a nice clean simple beer and even though i mean you know it's a wheat beer we we with both the purple and the uh red russian we just use uh imperial's pub yeah we don't use anything super wild we wanted something that's fairly uh fairly my favorite mild. strain of yeast yep and so it's just it's clean it's really simple nice and flavorful yeah i love this um and pub uh talking about the clarity here pub is a high flocculating yeast which is really good at grabbing some stuff and pulling it down it can be a finicky yeast uh but if you use it right the flavor profile that it gives is just very malt leaning but also taking a huge back step it's not going to be like creating a lot of fruity esters that get in the way it just pushes forward that malt flavor in a really nice way yeah yeah we love it and that's what we use for all of our generally malt based things is pub um, let's talk about Scott's beer because we've already mentioned that, and that's got a really cool history on it. Yeah, absolutely. So, actually, it's the second half of this beer as well. Um, so, Purple Egyptian, being hullless, needed a, a hulled barley, so we used Scott's beer. Red Russian, being a wheat, it is also hullless. Um, we needed a, a, a barley with hulls on it. So, we used Scott's beer barley, <clears throat> which is, uh, yeah, has this really awesome heritage to it. So, it is the oldest growing cereal grain in the British Isles. So it, it originates in the Orkney Islands off of Scotland, so northeastern Scotland, um, and is grown in two places in the world. The Orkney Islands, where they've got about 40 acres of it still in cultivation, it wins like these crazy heritage awards every year. It's generally only used there for distilling. Uh, it's really, really, really crazy rich, crazy strong. Like, fine, think about the strongest flavored barley that you've ever brewed with and multiply it by 10. It's really rich, super, super bready, super strong, really delicious. Um, and we actually do brew with it 100%. We, we, I've been working on finalizing the recipe that we'll have to be able to put into a can um, that actually I think is just going to be like an English lager. Yeah. Um, just a little bit of Fuggles, 100% Scots Bear Pale. Um, but yeah, it's history Sounds coming really from the <clears throat> Orkney Islands. Um, it was actually grown out by George Washington. Oh, nice. um, yeah, so our farmer, uh, Don, uh, at Palouse Heritage, they actually, I think that they still have it, they curate a little test show plot at Mount Vernon in Virginia, which is uh, Thomas, or, sorry, George Washington's um, home, um, because it has such a heritage. It was grown out fairly commonly in the Americas um, during colonial times and then just disappeared. It is a tiny barley and... From what I hear, not being a farmer, it's a giant pain to grow. It's yeah. not easy to grow. It's really low yielding. It's, I mean, brewing with it is kind of challenging because it is so small. When we brew with it 100%, the most 
I've gotten off of it. Uh, it it's, it's, we struggle to get much above like 4.8%. Oh, wow. It's really low. Yeah. But the flavor is so rich, so strong, it's well worth it for us to use. Um, and it, again, it's actually, God, it might be pushing 17% protein. Oh, wow. It's really high. For a barley, it's, uh, yeah, especially. Yeah. It's, it's insane. Um, and yeah, Red Russian, the wheat itself is like 16.5%. Um, they're all pretty dang high. And, you know, the nice part for us that we've found and we're totally <clears throat> good with, you know, a lot of breweries uh, aim for consistency. Yeah. You know, you get your, your flagship beer and you just like brew that over and over and over again. And, you know, consistency in, in like quality is always important. For us, these grains, because they are the, the land race grains, they change annually. They change to. with climate. Yeah. They're, they're agricultural products. So, you know, when we have a really hot, dry summer, mm. it changes. We have high proteins or higher proteins, uh, lower, lower um, endosperm development, things like that from our, from our farms. But we end up with more flavor. Wetter summers and things like that, it's the other way. We'll yeah. get a little bit more sugars, a little bit more more endosperm, a little bit lower proteins, things like that. And we end up with a little bit less flavor, but it's a little bit easier to brew with, which, you know, has its trade-offs. For this, we we really love Scott's Bear. Its history is insane. It's got a got a really great story that's super easy to tell. And the flavor on it is just fantastic. Yeah, so. it's yeah, it's really good. Yeah. Um, not that I'm drinking right now, we're still drinking the red Russian wheat, but it's yeah i've used scott's bear a number of times and it's really really good um talking about i love the, i love the concept that go that we talk about when we talk about making beers that are designed to be different based on the ingredients that you use uh we have a philosophy here where we don't make the same beer twice and we do that on purpose yeah. um and i feel like especially for you know a lot of medium to small scale breweries i would say even 10 barrel and under um a lot of them physically can't make the same beer twice and so a lot of breweries that you go to that are you you you're your favorite breweries um, that have that flagship that you go for every single time, it's probably going to change batch to batch. Um, it's probably going to change the first keg that's on tap versus the last keg that's on tap. It's just not the same flavor every single time. The people that are in the business of making consistent beers flavors also usually make the lowest flavor in their beer. Yeah. So totally. I like the idea and I want to push that out there to a lot of people of when you're brewing, when you're home brewing, um, using ingredients that might not be as consistent, but you're doing it to try to push different flavors and build bigger, newer flavors. I, I love the way that you put that. Like that's so, I mean, that, that articulates everything that we've ever thought. You yeah. know what I mean? Like we, we do, we totally brew the purple Egyptian, but like I change it almost every single time to it's, it's a weird grain to use. So we have to adjust. We have to figure out the best ways uh -oh, to use it. My camera's it. battery's low. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Are we good? We might be. We'll I'll, I'll let you handle that. Uh, this is beyond my, my skill set here. But yeah, we, I mean, we really, we aren't super concerned with consistency. We, we want things that taste good and are unique. Um, so that's, that's really what we push is making sure that we can, can do that well. Um, as far as, you know, the, the part of what we talked about with our Inland Northwest series, we're not doing the same, uh, same beer. Uh-oh, we cut off. Can they still hear us? They still hear us. Oh, good. Okay, cool. The audio's uh, Perfect. Well, good. Let's Glad that you guys can still hear us. Um, yeah, so we, you know, we really don't, we, we want everything to be different every single time. We want it to be unique. We want it to be something that is delicious, even if it's different. Um, we, we also generally with these beers, the land race beers specifically, they don't fit a style. We, we you know, we, if we were to try to uh, put these forward for uh, competitions and beer shows and things like that, 
I, I have no idea what style we would even put them under. We they don't fit. They're not a pale ale. They're not a they're not anything that that is known. We just aim for something that is good, uh, something that is unique, something that is flavorful, um, and that showcases our region. That's that's the big thing for us. We're really proud of of what the Palouse and the Yakima Valley have to offer, and, and that's what our focus is. We we want it to be something that kind of showcases those deals. Uh, we we've kind of talked about it as like the wineification of beer, which sounds real douchey, but it is something that we we want it to be where people can. With, with wine, you, you talk about variety. You talk about what those different grains are and what their flavors are, and that's what we want. We want something that really just highlights all of those different pieces for it. So uh, that's why we use these these weird land race grains and, and different things, um, not because they're easy to use, but because it's unique, it's flavorful, it has a story. Um, the nice part about these grains, too, that, that's really important to note is that our farmer, Don, that grows them, grows them regeneratively. So uh, he's actually quantified it down um, where it's uh, each pint that you drink of one of these, uh, one of these beers is, I think it's like 5.2 square feet that is transitioned to regenerative agriculture that is soil healthy, environmentally healthy, human healthy, things like that, which is pretty cool. Um, Oh, that's okay. I mean, it's a good look for me. I'm, I'm pale enough as it is. So this, this maybe helps. Um, Sorry about us being purple. Yeah. Hopefully that's not too off-putting. Hey, but while I was fixing the camera, we gained like nine people watching. So, it's a uh, good deal. Whoops, guys. You got enough of our face. You can see our purple face now. Um, all right. Uh, we talked about, you just talked about, what did you just talk about? What I, I don't even know, man. Uh, Scott's Bear and land races in general. I guess I didn't mention the other land race. Oh, but you got to do, do a shout real quick. Oh, yeah. Uh, John, thank you so much for the super chat. Uh, he says, thank you for what you do. I really appreciate your work, humor, and style. Thank you. I appreciate the super chat. That's awesome. And we, always, we, always, we, <laughs> we always, love the, uh, always love the support from you guys. Thank you so much. Um, you want to jump into talking about the Coruscant? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So one of the things that we brewed with, and actually it was when we did, God, I think it was, oh, uh, the... Um, the oat porridge kvass, yeah. uh, which we called the Otis, uh, a big portion of the grain that we use for that bread is Khorasan, sometimes known as Kamut. Kamut is its trade name. Um, but really, the underlying grain is Khorasan, which is uh, this really, really, really ancient grain. It's a yellow wheat. It's gigantic. Um, it's one of the parents of Durham semolina, which is the pasta flour or the yeah. pasta uh, grain. So it's got this really cool deal to it. So we wanted to, uh, when I brewed that beer, I wanted it to essentially showcase what the flavor of that uh, that bread was. I yeah. wanted to recreate that bread in a beer. So I used a bunch of raw Coruscant in it, and we actually milled it on our on our. Stone mill at yeah. the shop. Should make some flour. Um, which was a nightmare because then I immediately dumped in 20 pounds of flour into a mash, which was the stupidest thing I've done. As, well, I shouldn't <laughs> say the stupidest. Uh, we did. You can always get stupider. Totally. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could do a lot more. But it was, we, we, we milled it fairly coarsely. So it was kind of cornmeal-y. Mm. Even then, there was enough, like, just flour in there that it was, I mean, out of my barrel and a half, I think I pulled like 34 gallons off of that thing. It was <laughs> terrible. But it was really, really fantastic. Uh, I did a really, really hot mash to try and break as much of that starch down as possible. I think I mashed like 162, okay. something like that. It wasn't perfect, but I, I, you know, on our, we have a, a 
Sabco, one of the uh, barrel and a half systems. Yeah, yeah. So mm -hmm. I was able, you know, I, I ran the ran the burner on that system pretty actively through that to really try to break down all the starches in the Coruscant. But it Coruscant is this really cool grain, it has this really nice, uh, like again, herbal um, herbal flavor to it. It's really rich. It's got this really really awesome sweetness and and everything like that. So it made up probably. I mean, God, I think I only put 50 pounds total grain in that, and it was 20 pounds of it was Coruscant. So it was it was a good portion. Yeah, of, that's of a high adjunct profile. Though. It was really nice. It was really really like soft but creamy and kind of like stuck to your cheeks. It was really good. It nice. was overall really nice. That's not one that, that I've brewed with, and so that's going to be a fun one for me to to try out. Yeah, it was. You know, it was the first time that I've done a raw grain. Right. Actively. I've so done so. I've done a lot unique. of raw regular wheats, and so yeah. yeah but the core is yeah. just adding that little extra flavor from, um, you know, being you know not modified to the point where it's trying to be a neutral brewing grain. It's huge. Yeah. Uh, Wade C. Floyd, thank you so much for uh, um, giving us a super chat. You say uh, thanks for keeping me entertained and educated while I mash on Sunday mornings. That's what we're here for. And also, if you've got any questions towards the end of it, and you're like, I don't know what's happening in my mash, or I want to throw a raw puppy dog into my mash, is that a good idea? I'd probably say no. Puppy dogs are nice. Yeah. yeah. Um, let's, so we've talked about uh, Corazon. Let's go into the last, the last two, or two that I've actually used quite a bit. and um, Let's go Spelt first, because that's the one that probably people don't see as often, but it's still pretty familiar in the yeah. brewing world. Yeah, yeah. So Spelt, um, and actually our, our malt house in town just got a new Spelt. I'm going to brew with, I think this week, maybe maybe the next week, yeah. that I'm like super jazz on. It's super expensive, but it's organic, yeah. and it's Hollis, which is great. Before this, the only Spelt that they have is a, a variety called Frank, which actually holds its hull. And I don't know if you've seen like what a spelt grain is with <laughs> hull on it. Uh, go go Google it right now for those of you that are watching. It's the craziest husk around. It's gigantic. Um, Could substitute for risels probably. Oh, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. So, and actually we've used it in that way a, a little bit because it, it still has extract in it. Like you can still yeah. get sugars off of it, which is really cool. And as a result, you can actually do like 100% wheat-based things. Spelt is this like real real pre-wheat uh grain it's like a, it essentially looks like a gigantic wheat it's really back in the cool. dinosaur ages yep but the dinosaur spelt, wheat spelt is making this like cool resurgence in brewing right now like as as a high protein wheat based adjunct that people can add into hazies because it, it's yeah. got really great haze stability and and the flavor is phenomenal it's really i mean it's really this sounds stupid, but weedy. It's yeah. got it's a wheat, but it, it's really wheaty and creamy and soft and and overall this really nice deal. So Frank is a hull on wheat that is really interesting to use because in a you know a, a standard sized bag of malt that you would get this you know in America it's fifty pound bag and in Europe it's how many kilos but it's fifty five yeah, pounds fifty five yeah twenty five kilos yeah so you know it, it's that size you can only get thirty pounds of it into one of those bags because oh, wow. it's so, so fluffy it's so fl like so fluffy that you yeah. can only get thirty pounds um, which is cool but it's got a really fantastic flavor so actually back like oh god almost two years now we with Thomas at Bellwether we did a one hundred percent spelt uh beer with i missed it. that one and it was 10 uh i think that you know brewed on the 10 barrel system and filled that mash ton up as much as we could <laughs> and it was still only like i think that we only got like 
five barrels off of that oh, thing wow. because it was so like it's just so it's so fluffy it takes up so much space um but it ended up being really really fantastic so it's 100 percent spelt really nice um I, yeah the the newer spelt that they have is elwa river which is a, a river in washington it's recently developed spelt by okay. wsu oh yeah grown organically um super super excited to use it i'm gonna do a single hop pail with uh idaho gem no, next, next week yeah. or the week after um, with that. And they have a new malted oats, Monica Oats, um, which cool. should be really that cool. A, that's not also from WCU or that? Probably Good question. Not. I honestly don't know. WCU does a lot of like uh, malt breeding programs yeah. too, which my alma mater, I probably should have done something in the agricultural world when I was down there. I did biochemistry like a sissy. Um, hey, you know, you should have Kevin Murphy, their, their <laughs> barley brewer or their oh, yeah. barley uh, breeder up here. And, and to, I bet he'd love, like, he's got some oh, that'd be awesome. crazy knowledge. He's he's a cool dude. Those he are my favorite you. people to talk to. I love, yeah, just anytime anyone's got, like, yeah. focused knowledge on something that I can nerd out on, that's that's always the most fun. Oh, yeah. That's the best. Yeah, so Spelt's really mm. cool. And, yeah, it's making this, like, really cool growth in brewing because it's a great use in hazies and things like that. It's got really, really nice, solid, um, like, haze potential and stability it's really really creamy which mm. and, and soft which people want and is overall just really really nice it's i i think it's the it's the it's the sexier version of wheat um to use so i'm, I'm super jazzed to uh to 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 use it so That's any it. other brewing youtubers that are out there my challenge to you is make a spelt hazy and put a video out on it yeah that yeah. sounds super fun yeah ruse hey the in, apartment brewer is still on apartment brewer I don't know your actual first name, but make a spell hazy. Yeah, do it. Thoughts on pitching? Since I since I called you out, I'm going to read your question. Thoughts on pitching the entire two liter yeast starter wort and all into a five gallon batch? I usually do it because I don't care to decant. Neither does brewlosophy, and I haven't noticed a difference. I also in a, I pitch my entire starter. Um, you're using beer flavors that are in your starter. It's relatively small. Um, and the majority of the flavor impact from the starter is going to be your yeast. And I don't like decanting because I don't like deactivating the yeast. I would prefer, I think the benefits from a healthy, active started yeast outweigh the extra liquid that I'm getting from, de from uh, chilling it and decanting it. Um, so also, Frank, uh, Frank Spelt, we're going to make a petition. Anytime you call uh, Spelt, uh, anytime you use the word Spelt, instead you got to call it Dinosaur Spelt. There you go. It's a giant. I think it's perfect. Yeah, Dig perfect. It. Nailed it. Uh, God, what's next? Oh. <laughs> the Apartment Brewer, thank you so much for the 100% Crystal Malt Wib Fund. All right, we're doing it. It's going to happen. Nice. Uh, oh, can I talk about Sonora real quick? Yes. Yes, let's do it. Yeah, so the fourth land race grain that we have and that we use that I just figured out the recipe for that we're going to can ultimately. Uh, Sonora white wheat is the original white wheat that was used for flour tortillas. Fun oh, fact. interesting. Came over in like the 1500s from Europe. Uh, was grown in Central America through Mexico. Now is like fairly common in southeastern or southwestern United States. Is grown for us on our farm in the Palouse. Yeah. Really cool. It's actually a really like mild grain. Um, it's a wheat. Tastes real weedy. Yeah. Uh, really fantastic. The the ultimate recipe that we're going to do is 100% Mandarina Bavaria. Okay. Uh, Get a Which little bit of that oranginess has, going on. Yeah, and it's been an interesting, you know, fits kind of the wheat thing. Yeah. It's been an interesting <laughs> beer to brew. Like, I, yeah, Mandarina was, it's an interesting hop. Where the first couple times I brewed it, like, I have found that anything hot side with that thing is not a flavor I enjoy. Yeah. Like, cold whirlpool and dry hop, fantastic. 
everything else is not is it, the flavor that I love. Has it been one of those ones where you get like a little bit of a like a, a weird herbalness, like not an herbalness that you like, but almost it tastes too bitter? Like not a hundred percent. You just described it's yeah. like it's astringently bitter. Yeah. I've gotten the same thing. Even We're at on the like, same page. It was so it's so weird because I mean, when it's used in portions of a whirlpool and things like that, or dry hop, it's I mean, that orange flavor is just wonderful. Right. But it's like as a hundred percent if you use it with anything other than just like cold whirlpool and and dry hopping, it's just like it's like you're chewing on orange pith. And yeah. It's terrible. I've gotten that same thing. Yeah, it's yeah. it's it's weird, but uh, yeah, I don't know exactly how to correct it, but uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what's yeah. next? Uh, oh, one more. Ryan Tritt. Is there? Oh, oh beer, 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 beer. Yeah. Um, oh crap. Uh, so the pale is either is 100% Centennial or the IPA is 100% Strata. You pick. Strata. Strata it is. Strata is fantastic hop if you haven't used it. Uh, it is developed by a small company in unison with, I think it's the University of Oregon, um, down in Oregon called Indie Hops. That Strata is like quickly becoming my all-time favorite hop. It's got like the perfect balance between citrus, tropical, and like weed in the best ways possible. It's like, do you guys use Strata often? Uh, we've used it twice now, and yeah. both times with good results, but we didn't make the best overall beer both times. Um, we kind of had some things go yeah, yeah, yeah. with uh, the brewing that... It was still good. You can taste the hops, but we did it wrong. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, no. Strata, like, if you haven't gotten a hold of Strata, it's expensive, but it is, like, so worth it. So this is a single origin Strata. That's a big thing for us, if you haven't noticed. Like, we want we want single origin everything. Hops, malt, everything. So this Strata is grown by Roy Farms in Moxie, Washington. Like, the coolest dudes around um, in hop growing. They, they grow a lot of um, certified organic stuff for Yakima Chief. Um... But they, they grow strata, um, and it is like, it is, yeah, the coolest hop. It is, to me, it's the perfect blend of dank, tropical citrus, like all the way through. I can smell it as soon as I'm pouring Dude, it. It is, I can smell it it from is here. nuts. Yeah, so this is, this is, again, going back to Bill Myers' uh, Joseph's Granary. Uh, this is 100% Baroness Barley and Cashup White Wheat. Mm-hmm. I, I guess I say 100%. It is acidulated. Um, yeah, so it's it's really nice and light. The flavor on it is fantastic. The smell is just like I could smell it as soon as I started yeah, pouring. It's it like, like all of a sudden poof. lemon lime with like a little bit of pot behind it. It's super super. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. I fantastic. get citrus and like I get like a deeper orange, like almost like a uh, what are those small oranges that are a little like a cuties kind of orange? Yeah, yeah. The um, ta- or the the um, satsumas. The, those the, things. Yeah, yeah, like a little bit of the sweeter kind of orange flavor. Yeah, and maybe a little bit of peachiness too. Yeah, totally. It's it's really really nice, and it's got to me. It's that, and the way that they describe it, Indie Hops, the the company that that developed it, is that it's it's that like dank kind of marijuana thing without yeah. without the cattiness, right? Which without I one hundred percent agree with. Without the pungence, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's super nice, super clean, super smooth. Um, yeah, so this is just th- and and actually this, this is super approachable. This is probably like if I had a beer that I was like someone was like I don't like IPAs yeah. and I'm trying to get them into IPAs. This would probably be the beer that I'd be like you got to try this IPA. So this is funny too because I you know I I I enjoy hazies for sure and I I brew them we brew them a little bit yeah but I. I like a little bit of, of like a crisp bitterness behind it. So mm-hmm. I, I've been describing this to people as like it's the it's that blend between East and West Coast, yeah. like where you know a, a, a traditional like New England IPA has just 
like maybe cold side and dry hopped. Um, this actually is like 50 IBUs. This is oh, wow. has uh, like a fair amount of Columbus for bittering. Okay. And I did some five minute edition of Strata and then it was cold and whirlpool, cold right. side whirlpool and dry hop. Um, but it, it is like, yeah, it's like 48 IBUs, but it doesn't feel super bitter. It's really yeah. nice. It's really soft. It's yeah. good, and it's got a lot of big flavors. It definitely still tastes like an IPA. You can feel it's yeah. an IPA, but it's yeah. not aggressive. Totally. All right, let's quickly go over Ryan Tritt so we have some time for some yep. Q&As. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so we use a lot of Ryan Triticale. We have a good farmer friend um, named James Wall um, that he grows Ryan Triticale. He's like, rye is the, the like worst grain for farmers to grow because it, it's literally a weed. It invades other other fields and things like that but uh we love rye in hazies and other things rye has this like beautiful beautiful spicy flavor so if you haven't used a lot of rye in brewing please do and please use it at really high portions like a lot of people with rye beers they'll do small like right, they'll yeah. do like five percent of a of a grain yeah. bill or even ten percent be like it's a rye pale Is yeah it? no 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 yeah fifty percent do fifty percent it's fantastic Use a lot, like, if you want to do something hoppy, I recommend some, some Chinook in there for flavor. That, like, that, that spice, grapefruit, pepper thing from Chinook with rye is just phenomenal. Really recommended. Uh, Triticale is another one that he grows, which is, like, this rye-wheat hybrid grain that is, uh, has less of that spiciness, more herbal. Uh, do you guys use Trit? Yeah. His Trit a lot? It's uh, quite a bit. I'll almost, I'll almost always use it instead of rye in a lot of my beers that are, totally. um, you know, designed to have some rye-y flavor. Yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm going for that little extra. Yeah, I actually like the Trit better. Um, it's got a cleaner flavor to me. Rye mm -hmm. can be... Rye can be overpowering in really high portions. Trit is really herbal and floral and really yeah. beautiful. If you use um, the if you if I if I'm using rye, I usually use a combination of flaked and malted, but I'm usually trying to get that pumpernickel yep, like, totally. kind of feel. Totally. Now, if I'm using triticale, I kind of want something a little extra, yeah. and I want obviously the proteins and head building qualities from it. Absolutely. But I'm kind of wanting it to take a backseat. Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. I mean, yeah, rye and triticale, fantastic. Highly recommend if you can get them from Link, get them from Link. Uh, the rye that James grows is called Gazelle Rye. Uh, he's tried some other ones. Gazelle's been the best one that we've found. It's really, really nice. Um, the the Trude Kale as well is just fantastic. It's like, think about a, a really herbal floral wheat. Uh, again, a giant grain, huskless. Um, really, really worth getting your hands on and, yeah. and brewing with. And, I mean, even in Hazy's, like we, I brought another beer for Peter today that was it was a lot of trit. It mm. was uh, the genie, the new genie uh, pale malt that they have. Oh, nice. That Link has, and then like it was probably thirty percent trit and like ten percent wheat. I'm excited for that. Really, one. really good. Sounds so, really yeah, good. Yeah, with Idaho Seven and Azaka. So anytime you get a chance to experience like these high flavor grains in beer, I think it's just an, an experience that a lot of people aren't used to. Sometimes yeah. grains. I think Homebrew for Life actually just did a video about how grains are taking a backseat today to all the new yeasts and hops that are coming out. Yeah. And grains are kind of taking that backseat. So I like being able to showcase. Like by the way, there's a lot of really good flavor building yeah. you can do with fun, unique grains. And that's what we found is like you know we we've started branching into more. Uh, more more hoppy things but it is it's truly i, I don't want to say it's in subservience to the malt but the malt to me has to be present it has to be a portion of what we do and it has to be flavorful and i found trit to be a really really beautiful way to bring malt flavor into like a really really strongly hopped ipa yeah because I like that. it has that like beautiful floral punch um actually our we did the last 2019 als did you guys do an als uh 
No, he didn't. Uh, the the 2019 blend to me was like fairly herbal floral. Yeah. Um, and we did a fairly pretty significant portion of triticale in that beer, mm-hmm. and it played so perfectly with that herbal floral hot blend. I can see that um, going well. It was really really nice. So I, yeah, I've I'm like very quickly re-falling in love with using Trit in hoppy beers. I like it. Everyone out there, comment what your favorite malt that you heard of on the stream today is that you're excited to use in the upcoming future if you can. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the ALS blend, the only ones that I had from those were from uh, – you can take this one. I, I got it on my phone. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Cool. But, uh, yeah, the, I've had it because Golden Handle did the ALS thing every every yeah. year, so I was able to try theirs. Yeah. yeah, no, it's been cool. They're doing two blends this year, which is really neat. They're doing, like, a fairly – it looks like, at least reading the, the thing, it's going to be a fairly citrus-forward one with citra, like, 30% of the, okay. of the blends. And then another one, fairly similar to the last one, that I think will be a little bit more floral with, like, Simcoe uh, Laurel as, as the proprietor, the big big punches on them. So that'd be, be cool. That'd probably be my favorite one to use. Um, all right, let's find some questions on here and start answering. Um, a lot of these are kind of response. So when we're pulling a hazy IPA, I've generally gotten down to around 150 and then cooled down quickly from there. Anybody have a target temp to shoot for when they start cooling quickly? Um, my go-to on that is I go, I have two different ranges that I'll shoot for if I'm doing a hazy with big Whirlpool editions. Sometimes I'll just throw a big Whirlpool edition right under 200 and then just kind of let it free chill down to like 180 to 170. But if I'm doing two stages, I'll have one between 140 and 160 and one between 180 and 200. Uh, you kind of get on the lower end, you get a really sharp citrus bite. And on the upper end, you get a lot of those tropical fruit notes. But if you go too hot, if you go like that boiling temperature, a lot of those tropical notes kind of fade off. So that's what I do. Yep. Yeah. I'll do, I'll do occasionally like a 185 and then down to like 160. I like the 185 gets a little bit of bitterness to it mm. but you're like like you said a nice like tropical nose and things like that yep and then that that lower one is you get a lot more of that just general aroma flavor i like that yep uh let's see what else we got already answered that one um when you start ch- chilling down quickly to kind of finish out that um that when i start chilling down quickly is going to be around that one 50, 160 or below. Um, 140 is definitely the lowest. A lot of bacteria can start growing below 140, so I don't like to let it sit in that temperature range too long. Yeah, I, I get nervous below even 160 for me where I'm like, yeah. I, I mean, when you're larger scale, I, it's just expensive, and I don't want to lose anything like that. You know what I mean? Yeah, especially when you're doing a big batch. People got me in the comments. Um... A lot of these are about the same question. I'm going from the top down, so. Uh, just said a mandarin of Bavaria in our hoppy lager slash IPL Pilsner Nipa and our pale ale. Effing love this hop. Is it proprietary? Mandarin of Bavaria is, is that a Haas product or is that? It's German. Um, I can't remember. It's a, it's a Hallertau um, variety. Yeah. I can't remember who bred it. It I don't even think it was Hopsteiner. Um, I don't think you can get rhizomes, but it's pretty easy and it's dirt cheap. Like you can get mandarina. I mean, if you if you, you watch, yeah. go to Hops Direct. You can, I mean, I bought. I think I bought forty four pounds of mandarina recently for like five dollars a pound. It, it was several years old, but it still tastes fantastic. So you can get mandarina pretty easily um, all the way through. Yeah, it's a cool one. It's it's a Hallertau um, variety. What's your go-to for increasing bicarbonate? Generally chalk, just because calcium and 
bicarbonate tend to go well together. They can help the beer flocculate out at the end of it. Um, sometimes I'll use baking soda if I can use a little extra sodium in my beer. But sodium can also get overwhelming pretty fast. And usually I'm going for sodium maybe between 10 and 20 parts per million, whereas bicarbonates I can go all the way up to 100 to 200 parts per million. So I generally use uh, bicarbonates from chalk. Thoughts on dry hopping, adding hops into fermenter with 170 degree wort 30 minutes before adding chilled wort to the fermenter. Wait, what? Oh, dip, dip hopping? Oh, yeah, I saw that dip hopping. Adding hops into fermenter with 170 degree wort before adding chilled wort to the fermenter. Honestly, 30 minutes before. That's not. This kind of sounds like whirlpooling to me. Yeah, it should have the same effect. The only thing that I would say is there might be some risk of oxidation. Not that's going to be a huge deal. No, because it's pre-fermentation still. So yeah, yeah. I don't. And at yeah. 170 degrees, you're you're pretty good on sanitation. I feel like it's probably an okay idea if you have, but I mean, it's 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 useless it's, unless you have the right system or you have a system that can't do a proper hop stand. Yeah. So it would be system sure. dependent. Yeah, and I actually think that, and I may be wrong, but I actually think that uh, the alchemist in Vermont does that. I've yeah. seen them like stirring hops in their fermenters at like. 170 degrees because i kind of assume that they don't have a whirlpool oh, yeah. um, that they can use so i kind of think that they use that as an alternative um and i've read i actually read something recently on i don't know craft beer and brewing or something like that where they were talking yeah. about hop dipping as a new thing i don't know enough about it to 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 be able to speak the the apartment brewer just paid five dollars to make sure that all of you guys know to hit the like button and i support that message thank you so much the apartment brewer Everyone hit the like button so this video can get millions of views. Uh, somebody just asked, ever used am- amaranth? I have not. Ghostfish is a brewery over in Seattle mm-hmm. that they are a gluten-free brewery. Um, one of their brewers is celiacs, and the other one's wife is celiac, I believe. Uh, so they 100% um, uh, gluten-free, and they I, I know that they do use amaranth. So... They may be a resource to reach out to and talk to. I know that they struggle to get gluten-free grains uh, malted. It's a big nightmare. There's a a craft malt house in uh, Colorado somewhere. I can't remember the name of them that they they do uh, gluten-free malting. That, again, I I assume if you Google, like, craft gluten-free malt, they'll pop up. There's probably, yes, yeah. Um, Yeah. There's some strains of spelt can be gluten-free too, can't they? Isn't there a certain strain of spelt that's gluten-free? That's a good question. I don't know. I'm, you know, honestly, I know that with our bread, we sell spelt not as gluten-free, but as digestible, yeah, friendly for gluten intolerant people, yeah, um, because it is. It's just a much more digestible, yeah, strain. So I don't know where I heard that from. A, but, uh, there might be a gluten-free spelt. I thought that was That'd a thing, fantastic. but I, yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure. Uh, the apartment brewer asked uh, if um, with high-protein malts on electric systems, he gets um, uh, a higher risk of scorching. Oh, that's so, a good question. Yeah, so we, we I mean, we're on, a, on an electric system, but I, I'm sure that that's a problem. Like, I mean, there's so much protein that falls out. Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, we, we end up with like a, a, in our 10-barrel batches, we end up with like an a 8 to 12-inch deep, pile of protein at the bottom of our tank i yeah i can imagine that any burners would cause a problem i i think that step mashing would probably help with that we would reduce the proteins um yeah so step mashing oh, probably help my other thing would be if you're doing 
Um, if you're doing some sort of a mash ramp at the end, uh, doing a rims style system could yeah. help as well. Yeah, strain um, some of that out. Basically just diffusing the heat in any possible way you can. Um, if you're using something like the anvil foundry, making sure that the bottom of the anvil foundry is clean and you're not using like hard abrasives on that because um, that can create scratches and the scratches are a good spot for sugars and proteins to glom into and that can make them burn if they're on a burner. Um, other than that, uh, probably just if you're heating up in those during the mash, just a looser mash, you know, a higher water to grist ratio. Have we ever done a grisette? Um, yeah, uh, I've done plenty of grisettes. Basically, grisette is a uh, higher protein, lower ABV farmhouse beer, um, and they are super tasty. Um, Serbla says pros and cons between using a hop spider and just dropping in freely. Um, I recommend dropping in freely over using a hop spider specifically. You can lose a lot of hop efficiency that way. Yeah, I, I, and I know that I, yeah, I, I don't like using any sort of containment for yeah. hops. Like I maximize I would, that contact. I would rather take the loss on the, on the overall, um, volume then reduce my my flavor contact. yeah like i i'm not brewing because i want it to be efficient i'm brewing because i want it to be tasty um best possible yeah. beer that's what you're going for yep i have a blue purple flaked malt in the past but i can't remember what it's called sound familiar to you guys blue slash purple flaked malts honestly that can be flaked rye sometimes yeah um if it was a commonly found malt it's probably flaked rye um, could have been a flake corn, like a, a flaked blue corn or something like that too. Yeah, depending on the fracture. How, but I, how it I don't know what, God, I don't know anybody that commercially would produce that. Yeah. On the, yeah, on the big scale, free range hopping. I think we're good. Shannon Tejron says really knowledgeable guest today, Peter. Glad to see you continue. Glad to see, glad to continue learning from genus. Nailed it. I Thank can read. You. It's been really fun. How do you get your chalk to dissolve in water? Uh, high temperature and generally speaking, it's going to dissolve better with neutral water than it's going to in a pre-acidified water. So if you, if you are for whatever reason, pre-acidify your water for strike, um, don't because it will, um, uh, it'll, it'll make the, uh, uh, chalk slake out basically. Yeah. We just recently started the only water adjustment or well, we don't do any water adjustments. The only chemistry adjustments that we've ever done and we just recently started doing it was just acidulated malt yeah um, because these the the i mean water spokane water is just like super super basic as it is yeah i mean we've had certain portions of the year where we'll pull water samples and get them tested and it's like eight yeah and and so you know we need to adjust something and then you know base malt uh is just not super acidic anyways so we we just do acidulated yeah, yeah, that, and yeah, we're at our old location. We were at eight pH two, but yeah. here we're actually at seven. Oh, I, don't nice. know, I don't know why. Oh, so you're pretty good to go. Yeah, our water comes into this building super neutral. We got to oh, test nice. it, and it's like low minerality across That's the board. Awesome. So yeah, it's crazy. Um, but at the uh, at the shop we were at before, we got that one tested, and it was eight pH, high bicarbonates yeah, or high. Oh, I mean that's but, what we're at. It's like yeah. it's wild. So yeah, we we have to we have to add acidulated. But I, we've got like really that. good water in Spokane. It's nice because we've got the oh, aquifer. It's so. And actually, the reason that we've never done anything was because we kind of like what we do with all of our grain. We just want it to taste like what Spokane is, yeah. right? So we just want to use, I mean, we have fantastic aqua for water, but we, I've started acidulating because we just get a little bit of a better extract and things like that. Exactly. Mash, so. uh, Delonia's Monk, is there no concern for hot sideration with dip hopping? That was my one thing that I thought might be an issue. Um, but again, it's really hard to get hot sideration. So 
Um, I probably wouldn't worry about it. Or I would, <laughs> For me, I'd probably just do a guess and check. I know I can brew more often than most people, but on the homebrew scale, I'd probably just try it and see if I got any off flavors from hot saturation. My guess is that I wouldn't. Um, I'm not going to say there's no concern because it does seem, especially if, depending on how you're pouring the cold word on top of the hot beer. Um, but my guess is that there's no concern. Uh, would you use, uh, would you use spelt and wheat malt in conjunction? If so, what ratio just tuning in? Sorry. If you went over this, um, yeah, you can you usually go for them for slightly different kind of, um, slightly different reasons, but, uh, uh, you, you can, if you're going for like, let's say hundred percent wheat beer, if you use that Frank spelt and you want yeah. that Frank spelt for, yeah. you know, the fluffiness. Fantastic. But yeah, it, but like in an, in an, uh, for me personally, in like a hazy or something like that, I would, if you're going to use spelt, I'd just use spelt. Yeah. Like do, do something that's a little bit more directed. Um, uh, if you want to taste what that spelt tastes like, use the spelt or use the wheat either way. Yeast and the beast. I'm late doing yard work. Yard work is less important than the live stream. <laughs> His wife doesn't agree. <laughs> The apartment brewer uses baking soda for his. Um, yeah, we use baking soda for, we're talking, going back to the bicarbonate. How do you add that? Um, baking soda is the one thing about that is I try to make sure that I'm calculating out my, my sodium, which, uh, honestly, sodium and chloride, I add a little bit more if I'm doing anything German style. So there's not a lot of German style things that I want when I'm adding bicarbonate though. So it's one of those conundrums that's why i ended up usually adding because usually when you use a, a high bicarbonate you're going for like a burton on tramp profile yeah. which is high Something calcium and bicarbonate flinty and yeah yeah thoughts on beers uh, four out of five days a lot of spit of hot flavor let's see Are we almost, i'm almost cut up i think i'm almost cut up perfect Rasmus Elgard, I need to go out and get dinner, so I'm out. Take care, all, and great show, Peter, at Genus Brewing. Uh, see some of you guys on Wednesday later. Nice. Yes, you will. That's the Browsecast, or the Hoppy Hour. Uh, I think we're all caught up. Do you see any other questions? No, I don't think so. Cool. Holler if you've got them, but, yeah, I think that we hit them. And if you haven't already followed The Grain Shed on social medias, The Grain Shed is an awesome uh, local brewery slash uh, bakery which is a really cool combination. Um, again, going back to their stick, they do an awesome job at bringing local grains and really unique grains into uh, both their beer and the bread that they make. And so it's a really good way to learn about uh, unique things that you've probably never heard of and also taste things that you probably can't taste in beer elsewhere. So Yeah, if you're ever in Spokane, come visit us. We would love to talk. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm the beer side. Our baker is like the craziest knowledgeable person on, it's, it's really, really fascinating. Uh, yeah, swing on by. Oh, we've got two new questions. What's, what's y'all's favorite lager yeast? Uh, 3470 is my favorite lager yeast. I have no idea what that means, but I, I really love Harvest. Um, Harvest I also is recently different, brewed yeah. with Global and enjoyed that too. Global is 3470. I like that So one. that's the fine stuff in lager strain. Yeah. Um, so yeah, Global 3470, that's kind of my go-to just because of its universality. Yeah. Um, Harvest is yeah. nice because it's got a subtle fruitiness that kind of totally. pushes forward, forward some maltiness totally. too, but, uh. Yeah, thirty-four yeah. seventy, just because it's, it's just more plug and play to me. Yeah, but I do love Harvest as yeah. well. Yeah, no, I, and that's what I found from Global is that it was very like you could do, damn near anything. Yeah, and it'd be delicious. Make a West Coast IPA with Global, and it'll still work yeah. out. Why not? Uh, what else was that another question that was out there? I don't think it was uh, the oh, what to do after I extract all my bicarbonate. So, are you talking about if you slake out all your bicarbonate? So, if you get all your bicarb down. Um, 
you don't need it for most beers. There's only certain beers that you really want bicarbonate in. There's a certain minerality that you get from bicarbonate being in your beer. Um, and it's probably most commonly needed in something like a dry Irish stout. But outside of that, there's really not a lot that you need it for. Um, any Burton style ones? Someone says Urkel as my as a as a lager yeast. Urkel is great, but Urkel is more difficult to use. It can throw sulfurs, and it also throws diacetyl if you don't do a VDK rest. But yeah. So here's my question. You said you could do a West Coast IPA with a uh, with Global. Yeah. So have you done like the cold IPA thing that that uh, Wayfinders pumping out of? Portland? We've made something that's the exact same thing before. Yeah. And so when they're like, cold IPA, I'm like, well, we call it an IPL, but whatever. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> uh, but the biggest thing was like, so uh, 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 IPL is more like, uh, you know, generally like West Coasty, generally like, yeah. uh, you know, a little bit brighter. Yeah. Whereas they are trying to do a hazy flavor profile right. into an IPL. Right. Um, so but they're I mean, fermenting at like 64. Yeah, 64, 65. Yeah. And yeah. they're using the 3470 strain, yeah. the global yeah. strain. Um, and so I don't get why they're calling it a cold IPA. Because <laughs> they want to do something different, right? Yeah, I, I, get, I get that they're calling it a, a cold IPA because it's got IPA in the name and it's like new and topical. But it's, oh, yeah, and he talks, he doesn't like IPLs. He's like, oh, I don't, yeah. I don't want to. Oh, <clears throat> IPLs are stupid. It's IPA with a lager yeast. That's what it is. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, I, I get that it's more marketable to, to do uh, an IPA with some sort of caveat in front of it than it is to do an IPA. Totally. But I, I, I can agree. Agree with some of the flavors that you might get off of it. I don't agree that it's a different beer. I think he's just making a hazy with yeah. Um, yeah. a hazy with a lager yeast that ends up being cleared. So totally. a juicy IPA. It's a juicy IPA. Yeah. I'm yeah. sure there's thousands sure. of people who have made a juicy IPA like that before. For sure. Uh, any other? Ever use pickling lime? Uh, I usually don't need to because I get all my minerals from everything else. And I believe we are. I think that's it. Caught up. Alka-Seltzer tablets. No. Everyone, follow the Grain Shed on all social medias. What's your favorite social media to plug? Oh, I mean, I, Instagram and, and Facebook. For, uh, Instagram, do Instagram. He takes some great pictures for their Instagram, so do that. I like the photos thing. It's fun, man. Tell them, the, tell them to like our second channel. Oh, yeah. Make sure to like and subscribe to this channel. These guys are fantastic. Also, if you're ever in Spokane and you don't already live there, obviously, come on down. These dudes do the coolest stuff. Um, I mean, fantastic homebrew shop anyways. But, yeah, come, use Tums as, for bicarb. Peter, what's your take on somebody using Tums for bicarb? It's going to have a little bit of a weird flavor, but it literally is the same thing as chocolate. There you go. Use the raspberry one and do it in, like, a fruited sour. It'll be great. It'll be fantastic. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry that we're purple. The the uh, battery died on the camera midway through. If you if you weren't here for that portion, it was really exciting. Uh, I thought that we were going to die, um, and and but no, we're we're still here. We, you could hear us talking, so that was fun. Uh, our Instagram is at the Grain Shed. Same with Facebook, I believe. Um, yeah. Oh, Peter's about to link it, so check it there. Uh, yeah. Make sure to like and uh, subscribe to this channel also. Um, yeah, if you're ever in town, come by, see both of us. We, you know, it's it's some pretty cool stuff. Actually, you know, Spokane, Spokane doesn't get a doesn't get a whole lot of talk. Spokane has some absolutely fantastic, unique beer uh, that is is really worth checking out. Like if you if you want something a little bit different, uh, you know, like there's ninety thousand places that do hazy IPAs, which is fine. But like if you want if you want something different, come to Spokane. It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool stuff. Bye, guys.